Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Lutheran Services. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Nick Ryan, CEO of Lutheran Services. I've had the pleasure of working with Nick for over 10 years and watch with great interest his career straddle both the government and the not-for-profit sectors. Our topic today is leading in challenging times. Nick is an experienced CEO, board member and senior executive with 30 years experience in a range of human services industries including aged care, government, youth services and education. He has led and advised a variety of organisations from government departments, industry representative bodies, not-for-profit service providers and charities. In May 2019, he joined Lutheran Services as CEO after a stint as interim CEO of Southern Cross Queensland. Prior to this, he was CEO of Australia's Aged Care Quality Agency and CEO of Aged Care Queensland, now part of Leading Aged Services Australia. He's also served on boards of Australian Children's Education and Age Quality Authority and the Leukaemia Foundation of Queensland. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Patrick. Now, you've enjoyed what I would consider a fascinating career, as I outlined in my introduction. And, uh, but I understand you commenced your latest executive role as CEO of an aged care provider just as the outbreak of COVID-19 <laughs> began. So let's start with... Uh, how's this last 18 months been for you and leading an organisation through what's been a really tumultuous period? Uh, our topic today is about leading in difficult times, so let's start with that. Look, COVID has been something that really turns risk management and risk prediction on its head. <laughs> so we were reviewing our, our risk register from just a few months before COVID commenced and the most important thing that's happened to us in the last 18 months was on no one's risk register, a pandemic. And so it's a reminder and the need first and foremost is to work out, is to get good information and to look after the safety and well-being of the residents and the staff. So the way that we've survived with that, and uh, I think survive reasonably well, but they're famous last words, (laughs) survive well so far, is that we adopted an emergency management response So instead of business as usual, we really stood up a a separate capability and we opened and closed meetings as you would as part of an emergency response. So we moved into much clearer rosters, acquisition lists, schedules of people, checks and balances and all the rest. And that served us so far reasonably well. And of course, we have very strong clinicians and people in our organisation in Lutheran Services who are trained in emergency management. Mm. So that's been particularly helpful. Mm. Personally, I also had some health challenges during that time. So it was interesting that whilst everyone was working at home, I was working at home, but I needed to work at home uh, during For that period. Reasons, yeah. and, 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 and that's been well, well resolved recently. So I think... I think that the pandemic has had some unusual positive effects and that is I was reading statistics last week about the significant reduction in the rate of death in residential nursing homes because older people 
aren't getting influenza or pneumonia as readily. And so, of course, for residents and, and facilities where there's an outbreak, it's catastrophic, and I, yes. I don't want to minimise that. But for the 210,000-odd, give or take, residents in any one time, uh, it's actually uh, it's increased life expectancy marginally but, but noticeably. Whether it's extended quality of life, I doubt that it has because the clinical need for, uh, for safety and, and for security for those residents means that interaction with their loved ones, interaction with one another, and even having staff members who are in their room who aren't in PPE has to impact upon quality of life. So in a sense, uh, the world is lucky that it's been a century since a major pandemic of this type. It's also arguably a moderate pandemic. It's not a hemorrhagic virus. And so it's not Ebola writ large. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, these, and, and of course, it, it has increased Australia's understanding and appreciation for vaccination for most people and for good medical research and evidence-based medicine, which of course is something that we need fully. Now, your career is traversed back and forth, as, as I mentioned in the introduction. And you've had senior roles in, in, in government, in industry and in peak bodies and, and back and forth over, over the journey of your life. And my observation is that's not particularly common as I see careers unfold. And, you know, most leaders tend to stay in, in, in a sector and in, in develop uh, a reputation and career path in that space. So um, I'm just interested to unpack how did that occur, firstly, and then um, how's that journey evolved your leadership style? I'm interested to explore that further. I've, I've been very lucky to have had the career that I'm having, that I'm still having. I think uh, I was sharing with our son, Joseph, who's almost 18, and he wanted to know how I arrived where I've arrived. Yeah. And uh, that the risk with telling the story is that you could always predict what the next chapter would bring, which of course is, is never the case. Yeah. But I, uh, I go back to my first involvement out of school, other than driving trucks and doing a few other things, was I worked uh, running youth groups within the Catholic Church. Yep. And so that experience of running good groups gave me all sorts of insights as to how human beings interact and how, how you work together to achieve tasks, what good group dynamics are and what effective leadership might mean. And certainly later when I worked for Brisbane Catholic Education, I had some really great mentors, people like Peter Gagan and others, Don Siebert, Kevin Treston, who really practised quite a strong notion of servant leadership and, and stewardship, yep. so that there was a, this notion of power over people to coerce people uh, was absolutely not part of the frame at the, at the time. And, of course, that kind of toolbox around good pastoral mm. care, around understanding what motivates people and rarely do threats actually motivate people unless it's a life and death situation. Yes. And, and in fact, to give people a narrative and a frame and a direction yep. and to empower them and to provide them with a safe environment. So one of the things yeah. that I'm really conscious of is my job as a CEO is to provide a safe place for people to do really, really good things. Yep. Um, and so uh, whilst I could 
talk a lot about leadership theories and who I like and so forth. There's just a fundamental understanding around being decent and being kind and understanding that uh, that people do well when they're equipped and, and they're given some trust uh, and that they get to set and meet their own goals as part of a bigger framework. That's my approach. And whilst I actively advocated that for years, I've actually become far more protective of that as a frame so that when, I, when I'm interviewing people for jobs and I get kind of uh, kicked down, kiss up applicants, I won't ever touch them. I believe in the, it's a bit like the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Um, I think leaders are, need to be self-aware and they need to be skillful. They need to catch themselves out in the act of being themselves as a leader. <laughs> And, and, and they need to be skillful in the way that they do business because often people say, oh, well, if you're a leader, not everyone's going to be happy so they've just got to suck it up. And I think that that can be unskillful and can be partly due to a lack of self-awareness. So uh, we all have to attend to ourselves as a work in progress, do the personal interpersonal work, check in with others, get good advice, uh, surround yourself with people who will tell you exactly what they think in a way that's supportive and encouraging, yeah. but direct nonetheless. Sure. And it is about uh, being being skillful in the way we interact. So, so some of the things is we always want to start well and finish well with people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, you know, sometimes. Um, uh, sometimes you know people go, oh, well, that's the end of that chapter. They slam the door and they go. And I, I actually think that that does it can do a kind of unnecessary violence or mm. uh, for people. So I'm really far more interested in um, unless people have done something demonstrably wrong, they've stolen yeah. or something. Yeah. Even if people haven't thrived in the job, it's always important to provide really positive feedback on what they've managed. Uh, and not to do it in a saccharine way, but uh, it's very rare. I've, I've, I've only worked with a handful of people that I couldn't genuinely say uh, half a dozen positive things about them, yep. uh, about who they are and about the way they do business. So my, my sense of leadership is really is framed in that kind of way. Wow, that's fantastic, Nick. Thank you. And, and so many insights um, that you could take away. I'm going to listen back myself and, and pick some of those tools that you were suggesting. One that, that, that I'll certainly use again is I'll be on the lookout for the kick down, kiss up <laughs> employee in the future. That was uh, priceless in terms of uh, who we picked to, to work with and, and guide in terms of our leadership. Now, I want to ask you this because I know that a lot of my clients, uh, CBA clients, are not-for-profits, um, a lot in the aged care space that you're yep. in, and uh, a lot of them obviously are all government-funded and they work in this compliance world. Uh, I want to talk about the Royal Commission as well, but simple question, what makes good compliance in your view? So this is, um, this is something which really interests me and I'm not... If if you really think about people who might aspire to be a regulator, they it kind of conjures images of someone with a with a clipboard and yeah. perhaps a I'll long image. Yeah, a long baton, you know, that they tap hello, hello, hello or something. And so I'm I'm not what you call a natural regulator. So this again, my my preference isn't um, command and control, though there's sometimes is a is a time for for that you know for those tools. For me, regulation, and I really like Malcolm Sparrow from yep. Kennedy School of, of Government at Harvard, 
So if I was to paraphrase Sparrow, his view is that regulation is only ever about one thing, and that's that's about risk. Mm, yeah. And so it could be uh, people being a risk to themselves, it could be people being a risk to one another, it could be people being risks to society more more yep. broadly. Yep. And by and large, you you need a mature regulatory framework that is able to differentiate between those who you do need to intervene with and sometimes take out of a marketplace. Yep. And that that has always been the case in every industry, including aged care. There is yes. when when I when I was in the quality agency, uh, we withdrew uh, accreditation altogether from a small handful of um, providers. Uh, but one of the things when I was in the agency that we never did is framed everyone as a potential or actual person like that. Yes. So, so what you need to do is to say the vast majority of providers work pretty hard with the tools that they have and the skills that they've got and the resources, which are becoming increasingly scarce, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Yep. Um, and they try to do the best that they can. Yep. And so what you need is what we would call a differentiated performance model that says you have greater regulatory involvement with those who are new into the marketplace or are genuinely struggling. And you have some good checks and balances that enable more mature providers to have a lighter touch regulatory approach. Yep. Now, I noticed that the Royal Commission didn't prefer, it didn't spell out a pure regulatory theory, but the regulatory theory tended to be more like most providers need to be diligently watched in case they abuse and neglect residents. That remains always the case, but it doesn't actually build quality. And actually, sure. if I come back to the point of risk, the best people to manage risk in aged care are the people running it, mm. not necessarily a regulator. And so unless you have a way of inspiring and recognising and rewarding improved performance, what you'll have is a reactive regulatory response or compliance response. Now, every time someone else takes the impetus and tells me what to do, I become reactive, I become retrospective, so I'm trying to cover my tracks. It's not about me and my vision and where I need to go. It's about meeting someone else's test who, who may be becoming more, more draconian or more suspicious. And of course, it's really hard to run aged care regulation, especially with the Royal Commission that found uh, significant instances of abuse. And the difficulty is that whilst there were instances of abuse that the Royal Commission found, even the self-declared the self instances of, of, uh, of care that fell short of the, of the standards uh, was a fraction of 1% of, of the days of care. Yes. So there's about 375 million days of care in the scope of the Royal Commission. And of course, a very small minority were the, were the terrible cases that none of us ever want to see and should be stamped out whenever they occur. The risk then is that the entire industry is framed yeah. around a minority. And of course, for someone like me, people could say, well, you're an apologist for bad care. Well, I'm absolutely not an apologist for bad care. But we need to understand and see what would grow proportionate, uh, you know, proportionally grow quality and value in the sector. And, and a good regulatory framework is where people increasingly understand their own risks, declare publicly their own risks, including their own failures, yep. and uh, are more open and transparent in their performance data yes. to help 
consumers and, and their loved ones make informed decisions. So in my five years, other than running things, uh, running the, the ship on a, on a day-to-day basis, I was really interested in a, in a mathematical performance model and a, and a variable performance framework, a, a graduated performance framework that would encourage people to seek and achieve higher performance, greater transparency longer periods of reaccreditation. That was the frame. Now, I will have to wait and see what the final wash-up is from the Royal Commission, but I, I think that constitutes a, a healthy contemporary regulatory framework. And just as a, a observation in terms of my experience with a very broad range of um, aged care clients, um, I often have the conversation, Nick, with them in relation to compliance regulation and... I suppose I um, warn them about aspiring to the minimum standard and and that's where we can fall into the trap that regulation sets a minimum entry point. Yes. Like, you know, this is your entry to the sector and uh, if you don't comply with that, you can't be in the game, so to speak. But that shouldn't be your aspiration. No, if you're going to come to work to comply, go and do something else that brings you joy. It's as yeah. simple as that. And it's like, it's like some tests in life. Those of us who have, have children have these conversations. Some tests in life, if you only get 97%, you're really disappointed, right? Because you really want to get 100%. Yep. And other tests in life, if you only get 52%, then you probably have done too much work, right? Because yeah. so, you only really needed to pass it, not, yep. not do any more. What we need, and 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 to be fair to, to government and to the public sector, you know, that sits with aged care policy, there's been genuine efforts over really the last 10 years to move towards uh, models that would, uh, would say to people, um, don't, don't come to work to just comply. A compliance mindset is disempowering and it does not necessarily improve quality or safety whatsoever. You still need to walk and chew gum. You need to have a minimum platform that if you fall below it or if you're approaching it, this is the safety and well-being of of the most vulnerable Australians and we're talking about billions of dollars of public money. So those things are not trivial. Correct. But we're interested in the big game. Um, It's like any of us who've ever had children at their birth. None of us ever held our newborn in our arms and hoped that they would comply. In life, you know. That's right. Please let my daughter comply. That would be. <laughs> that's, right, that's completely. <laughs> but you know what I mean is we let, let there be a higher aspiration than mere compliance. Agreed, agreed. Let's take a short break now for a quick word about our podcast partner, Lutheran Services. Lutheran Services provides quality and contemporary support and accommodation options for older people, young people and their families, those living with a disability or a mental illness and people experiencing domestic violence and hardship. So Lutheran Services supports some of the most vulnerable members of our community. Welcome back. Today I'm talking with Nick Ryan, CEO of Lutheran Services. All of our guests, they come from a diverse range of um, careers and, and uh, uh, you're no exception to that in terms of what you, you bring in terms of your leadership. And we're talking about leadership in, in you know, what's now been quite a difficult period. And 
you really explained really nicely, you know, your your approach and how that was evolved to leadership. But I want to tap into now how it's evolved over time and um, what who who or what has been the influences for you as you've evolved your leadership. Um, one of the things that that uh, aged care is pretty good at, government to a lesser extent, is if we're lucky we get mentors. And often a mentor doesn't even know they're a mentor. Until you tell them down the track. That's right. <laughs> until, you, until you tell them down yeah. the track. And it's often really hard because it's, it's often very hard to approach someone kind of at a meeting and go, look, on the count of three, would you be my mentor, please? Because <laughs> that, that, that can be a bit, bit unusual. Some of the people that I look back on, and I've, I've mentioned a few of them Correct. during my Brisbane Catholic Education days, who were incredibly, uh, they weren't always soft and gushing, no. but they would challenge my thinking and my practice. Uh, and they w- were clear about how their values informed their own behaviour and their own work performance. And I think... I think this question about what constitutes value and what constitutes safety is really important. So that the the, the people, there are some academics who, who I've read, certainly there's a lot of uh, leadership theory that I would have read probably back in those in the 90s and, and the early years of the of the century uh, that really informed me. So I was I was pretty interested in in systems theory, yep. uh, you know. Yep. Um, the fifth discipline and, you know, Peter Sangin and, and others and so forth. So that kind of framework particularly interested me. I've always been particularly interested in, uh, in leadership based on good spirituality. So being a Catholic, I come out of that space. So there's a lot of really strong contemporary stuff, mainly out of the United States, uh, around how to apply good Benedictine models. Yes. And in fact, I had a successful couple of years in my career applying Benedictine discernment models to making decisions in government, which, um, which uh, I'm, I've, I haven't come across a lot of people who've no. done that, but, uh, but that, that model of ha- how do you make decisions uh, in a way that's based on discernment rather than power um, is, is a very rich and evocative way of understanding the complexity of a question and, in fact, the complexity and the power of joined-up approaches yes. uh, to, to meet that. And so, so one of the things that really strikes me working as a CEO of Lutheran Services is that even though churches have gone through a period of challenges with royal, royal commissions into abuse and so forth, uh, all of which are essential, so I, yes. I don't run light on any of that in fact that was needed and arguably needed a long time before is that churches especially mainstream churches have been for centuries generous intergenerational communities that volunteered and looked after people Mm. now um, strong narrative strong story strong sense of values strong teaching strong sense of belonging Um, secular the secular business world couldn't hope with all of the tea in China to recreate the power of that narrative and culture. Mm. Of course, some of that narrative and culture can be caught up in old models. So that's, yes. it's not that it's always accessible. But, but one of the things that we're very proud about in Lutheran Services is, uh, is that we continue a service uh, or a model that started in Queensland in the 1830s where a group of German 
Lutheran missionaries came to Nanda. Okay, and in fact, Zilmi Road and Rodi and all of those were oh, yes. those, those missionaries. Um, and they were the first Europeans who were not part of the penal colony in Queensland. Um, and so this model that says people who turn up to really support each other, to provide care for those who might be vulnerable and so forth, to make a difference, not for their own self, but for others. Yes. This is very powerful. This is very powerful. And, and one of the risks with contemporary uh, public, with, you know, uh, certainly um, community services reform, is that we want to strip organisations back to efficient corporate models, devoid of... Of, of too much narrative, just efficient machines. Yes. Um, I'm not interested in running an efficient machine. I'm, I, I'm interested in drawing from, reflecting and adding to a narrative that has power and that, that can genuinely engage with people. That's what interests me. And by the way, I want it to be efficient. Yeah, great. What are some of the, the messages um, uh, that, that you'd give to leaders, particularly in, in difficult times. Uh, it's often, you know, you get pulled, don't you, from, you know, sometimes crisis to crisis and, yes. and, and just dealing with issues day in, day out. But what are some of the, the learnings that, or the message you give to uh, to those that are you know, leading in this, this particular time? Well, there's a, there's, a few, there's a few things that have, or a few approaches that have served me well and uh, and I've, and the feedback is that they've served those who I've managed to lead over the years. One of the things I really think is in the busyness, and it's always busy, and it's been very busy during a pandemic, <laughs> is that we're so busy doing and reacting, we don't stop. Mm. Uh, and so we we adopt a particular model of immersion, which is really probably Ignatian or Jesuit in its background is that we ask all of our leaders, that's our governance, that's our, in our case, Council for Lutheran Services, and my own senior executive staff, on a regular basis to go and spend preferably either a whole day or an evening overnight and a morning. They've got to arrive before dinner and leave after breakfast. And they don't bring their laptop. And they don't, they're not there to work. And they're not a celebrity, so they don't get the royal tour, none of that, right? They only have to answer five questions overnight or during that, uh, during that immersion experience. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? And they have to try to eschew or switch off the mental chatter that, w that says what's the policy or the risk framework and all the rest. There is a genuine time for that. But it's really saying, imagine... I was to live the rest of my life here. I mean, the rest of my life. Imagine what it would be like if I was frail and vulnerable. Uh, this is in our aged care. Disability services is different, but it, it's the yeah. same model. Is These are not consumers in our service. They are not residents. They're all kind of derivations of something else. These are human beings living their lives. Yeah. I want us to know to get the best possible insight into what that must be like. And I think immersion is a really powerful way to do that. And in government, we used to call them bench sits. So I would ask very senior executives from the Premier's Department who are responsible for regional policy throughout Queensland, they ha ha had to go and do a bench sit. And the bench sit was not on the main street in their rural town or in their rural city. It was just around the corner and just ask themselves, what's really going on here? 
Just what is the ebb and flow of daily life? Now, there is a time for performance reporting and consumer feedback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's no part to that. But the anchor is, it has to be experiential because for our consumers, it's they share their lives and they live their lives in, in homes that we administer or in services that, that we provide. Unless we have an immersive insight into that. Mm, fantastic. Well, so we, we also need, uh, you know, compliments and complaints and, you know, consumer experience, uh, you know, um, dashboards and all the rest. I'm not, I love the data and I, I love the maths. But it's, so in the midst of busyness, uh, just stop. That's all. Fantastic. What's the feedback from your team? Um, they, they come back with all sorts of insights about things that they thought worked well and didn't work well. And, and this is one of the reasons why one of our key projects uh, is the Epicure model developed by Sri Hugo from the Lantern Project. And I'm, to just to declare, I'm on the, on the, on the leadership group of, of, the, of the Lantern Project. Yep. So we've adopted the Lantern Project and their Epicure model, which we call Happy Table. Yep. Because, again, it's, it's, it's not this abstract notion of clinical care, which, by the way, you need good, good clinical care. It's the most, the single drumbeat that runs through a residential aged care facility every day is food, breakfast, morning tea, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not just because malnutrition rates in Australian nursing homes are appallingly high. And I noticed that the Royal Commission almost didn't discuss malnutrition at all and when they did it was just a a celebrity cook that they called upon Mm. um, to kind of draw that out but that we're interested in a good quality of life is where you eat well with one another Mm. and all of us know the difference between a meal together and a nutritional event yes a nutritional event is where I have an apple that I, that I eat whilst I drive in the car, um, but a meal together is celebratory. It, it could be commiserating. It could be all sorts of things, but it's a lived experience, not just a nutritional. So again, our, our interest is to enrich, is not just to have uh, good diversional therapy and interesting art, and, and, which we also have as well. It's how do we live the normal elements of life thoughtfully and with great focus and attention and this is why for us one of our key key priorities is happy table is how is it that the home can ensure that the food and dining experience notice i said food and dining experience not just nutrition or rates of malnutrition or for nutrition but what's how do we enhance the food and dining experience uh, of our almost thousand residents now of course, that will drop malnutrition, but we're interested in good lives, not just good clinical charts. Nick, thank you for those insights, and uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, and uh, I think there's some real uh, food for thought in terms of your approach to leadership and, and what's, um, what's uh, been really a powerful framework for you that's evolved over your career to date, and 
thank you so much for your time and I wish you all the very best success in your continuing career. Thanks, Nick. And Patrick, I appreciate the chance, always appreciate the chance. Uh, Part of my leadership journey for more than the last decade has involved regular conversations (laughs) with you. So, Patrick, um, I... I should have I should have put you in there much earlier, you know. Who 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 have been your great leadership resources? Well, Patrick Hurd has been a great leadership resource. So sometimes when I've been his client, and and, and other times just as as we're friends. So Correct. thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Nick, very much. Okay. And thanks to our podcast partner, Lutheran Services. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our seventh podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.